Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Legal Brief. I'm Misty Maris, and I'm here with my executive producer, Lauren Mincer-Clark. Hi, guys. Everybody, a happy holiday. I hope everybody had a wonderful uh, holiday season so far, and I'm sure everybody's looking forward to celebrating the new year. But in the meantime, there are a lot of stories that are breaking. Yes. Yeah, absolutely, during this holiday season, and one that we want to cover that has really been capturing the nation and all eyes are on this case is the case of Rogel Aguilero Medeiros. Now, this case went to trial. He was convicted in October. And so the question is, if he was convicted and found guilty in October, why are we talking about this now? So Aguilera Medeiros was a trucker. He was found guilty in October of four counts of vehicular homicide, along with 23 other charges. He was sentenced not until December 13th. Lauren, take us through this case because his sentencing has Mm -hmm. captured the attention not only of the nation, uh, of celebrities, of legal advocacy groups, but this sentencing has really rocked uh, r- rocked the world of, of many people. So let's hear about the case. It really has. I mean, the, we're talking that it's actually gone viral on TikTok where truckers are not even driving through Colorado in protest because of this driver. So this was a 27-year-old driver who was coming down a hill about, uh, apparently he reported to the police at about 85 miles an hour uh, and the brakes failed. But prosecutors are saying that he failed to go on those runaway ramps uh, and then he actually crashed into a bunch of parked cars that were in traffic, killing four. And so he was sentenced for this because he was charged with 42 criminal counts. He was given a 110-year sentence. But what was really interesting was that the judge actually at the sentencing says that he didn't believe this was an intentional act and didn't want to give concurrent sentences. The police said there was no alcohol or drugs involved. Um, and this driver had no prior criminal record. So, Misty, I kind of want to start at the beginning. Because now the DA is asking for a reduced sentence on charges that they filed. So they're the ones that made these 42 criminal counts and that got the 110-year sentence. So what's going on? Kind of take us to the beginning. Yeah, Lauren. So this is a very complicated case. And it deals with the legal structure that is in Colorado with respect to these criminal cases. So when this case first broke, and I was covering it, uh, and you were covering it, I know, because the the facts of the story are just so tragic, four mm-hmm. people dead, uh, a lot of destruction, and, and, and just a sympathetic defendant on the stand, despite all of the terrible uh, consequences of his actions. And so just important important to note, so he's charged with extreme indifference, attempts to commit assault, extreme indifference, vehicular assault, recklessness. There was never a charge of intentional killing. So that's mm-hmm. a really important piece of yeah. this case. Meanwhile, he, he faces these 42 <sighs> charges, and he's found guilty of 27 of them. Uh, including some of the more severe charges, which are vehicular homicide and the assault charges, uh, found guilty of assault and assault in, or attempted assault and assault in the first degree. So 
basically what happened in this case, this was a largely local story. Mm-hmm. Well, we were paying attention to it because it was so tragic, but it was largely a local story until the sentencing happened. And so many people are asking if you don't have somebody who, for instance, something that we see in criminal cases all the time, you have an intoxicated driver, yes. you have a driver who is fleeing a felony, something mm-hmm. to that effect. That's where you see these types of sentences. The question is, what happened here? Especially with the judge making this type of statement during sentencing, essentially saying, I don't want to give the sentence I'm about to give. Yeah, I think that your reaction is true of many, many people who are following this story and we're following the sentencing. So let's just take a step back and explain how a criminal trial works. So the first part of a trial is what's called the guilt phase. Those charges that we just talked about, the over 40 charges that the prosecutors brought against the defendant, that's all part of the guilt phase. The jury makes a determination about whether this person is Guilty, innocent, or can't decide. So in this case, he was found guilty on 27 of those charges. So once you're found guilty as a defendant, there's the second phase of the trial. The guilt phase is complete. Now we move to the penalty phase. And the penalty phase of this trial is what's garnering the national attention. So a jury decides the guilt phase. And this is for all of our listeners to understand. The jury decides that piece. In Colorado, the judge decides the sentencing. The reason Mm -hmm. that this case is so unique has a lot to do with Colorado law on sentencing. And Colorado has what's called mandatory minimum sentencing. So the judge's statement, I don't want to give this sentence, but my hands are tied, is true under Colorado Mm. law. So under the Colorado law, when there's what's called a crime of violence, and that's a classification in the law, and in this case, there's not much of a choice here because he was convicted of first-degree assault and attempted first-degree assault. Once somebody is convicted of a crime of violence, then the mandatory sentencing minimum kicks in. Mm. And those crimes of violence amplify all of the sentences for all of the other multiple convictions that the defendant here faced. Now, the other piece of this is for each and every conviction in many jurisdictions, a defendant would serve their sentence what's called concurrently, meaning you could be 10 years for this charge, 20 years for this charge, five years for this charge, but it would all be wrapped into the highest level charge. So if you were convicted of a 10, 10 years on one uh, charge, 20 on the next and 10 on the next, you would serve the 20. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't serve 10 plus 20 plus 10, but Makes that's sense. not the way it works in Colorado. Once you have been convicted of a crime of violence and you're convicted of multiple charges, you have to serve that sentence consecutively. And what consecutively means is just just how what it means in the layman's <laughs> sense, one right after the other. And that's how we get to this 110-year sentence. And so, Lauren, to your point, the judge made the statement during sentencing that he could not do anything about it, that he 
had to follow the statutory sentencing guidelines. And that's true. At the first instance in Colorado, the judge does not have any discretion. And that's different than in other states. In other states, judges can take certain aspects into consideration. They can look at aggravating factors and mitigating factors. Mitigating factors, which he flagged during the sentencing hearing, the judge flagged this during the sentencing hearing, that these... That, that there was not the intent, that there was not a criminal right. record, there was not a lot of um, the factors that would normally it, it result in this type of sentence. So the judge doesn't have any discretion under the Colorado statutory scheme. And that's why we saw this 110-year sentence that's sparking outrage across social media and uh, legal advocacy groups really harnessing in on this case because mandatory minimum sentences have been controversial, uh, not just in Colorado, but across the country. So this is really a case that's being looked at under a microscope because it's amplifying the issue of is the crime, is Mm. is this crime really proportional to the sentence that's been handed down here. Absolutely. And because I thought that it was interesting that actually I saw at least one report of a juror who remained anonymous who came out and spoke out how they were upset about the sentencing itself. And usually, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, that can't, that's not supposed to be factored in with the jury themselves. But it sounds like they were affected a little bit by, you know, the outcome from this. Right. So the juror had an emotional reaction to the sentencing because jurors are instructed in criminal cases not to take penalty into consideration. So the jury's job is to look at the evidence and apply it to the law. They can't think about what the penalty might be in making that determination. They're simply... And simply is the wrong word, Lauren, because it's a very complicated process. But their input is limited to assessing whether or not the prosecution has fulfilled their burden beyond a reasonable doubt on the elements of each charge. So they can't think, oh, gosh, if we convict on all of these charges, this person may be subjected to a sentence that we don't think is proportionate to the crime. They can't even consider that. And that's a jury Mm -hmm. instruction that's given. The jurors are specifically advised on that point. Another point is jurors are not supposed to take sympathy into consideration. So they're not supposed to find somebody guilty because they feel sympathetic towards a victim. They're supposed to look at the statute and apply the evidence and make determinations about the credibility of that evidence. And and that's why you see this juror having an emotional reaction. However, if the jurors are doing their job as they are supposed to be doing and under the criminal justice system, the penalty is not a factor in any mm. determination when, when making that determination of guilt or innocence. Interesting. Well, now the DA has asked. So we have all this outrage. It's gone viral on TikTok. Kim Kardashian is talking about it. I mean, truckers are not driving through Colorado out of protest. And now all of a sudden, the DA is asking to lower the sentence before I've just usually you see the defense coming out and doing this right away. But the DA is doing this. Can you explain how uncommon or unprecedented this is? Yeah. So this is really unusual. And in a in a hearing that just happened this week, just yesterday, 
the judge spoke about how unprecedented this is because you have the prosecution asking for the relief that a defendant usually asks for. So we just talked about how Colorado has these mandatory minimum sentences. But Colorado law, while the judge does not have discretion at the outset, so at the initial penalty phase, the judge has to follow these mandatory minimums, can't take anything else into consideration, has to have the second uh, the sentences run uh, concur- uh, consecutively. All of that happens at the initial penalty phase. But Colorado law also has a mechanism that allows the court to reconsider the sentence in an exceptional case that has unusual or extenuating circumstances. It's called a motion for sentence. It's called a modification hearing. And basically what happens is usually a defendant makes a motion saying this sentence is too harsh. And here are all the reasons why this sentence is too harsh. And in Colorado, at this basically second bite of the apple with respect to sentencing, that the the judge can actually deviate outside of that mandatory minimum Mm. sentence. Now, the unique part here is that it's the prosecution who's asking for this relief. That is unusual. So in the hearing yesterday where where, uh, procedural issues were handled, the judge talked about how they're going to move forward since this is such an unprecedented situation. Both sides have been directed to do some legal research. I mean, going back to law school legal (laughs) research about the procedural mechanism here. Because under Colorado law, a defendant cannot both make a motion to modify their sentence and an appeal. So the defense was very adamant. Okay, the prosecution is making this motion because... the. The prosecution who brought these charges has now determined that the sentence is not proportional to the crime based on their representation to the court, right, for this modification hearing. But the defense is saying, hey, we don't want this hearing brought by the prosecution to impact our ability to appeal the case on its whole, because my guess is the defense Mm. will be appealing not only the penalty, but will also be appealing from the guilty verdict. So that would be as a matter of course, you would appeal both. You would say that the penalty is harsh, but also, by the way, there was judicial error or whatever happened during the trial. That is the basis for an appeal on the guilt phase as well. So that's what's happening there. And Lauren, that highlights this is such an unprecedented situation. So just so everybody understands how a case comes to be, prosecutors bring the charges. It's not the judge. The prosecutors decide, and they have what's called prosecutorial discretion. When it, when the case hits their desk, they look at the case, they investigate the case, and they determine whether it is are viable. So they bring charges when prosecutors can bring charges and their ethical obligation is when they believe that they can prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. So the state has to be able to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt, whether or not they do or not at the end of the day is not indicative of whether they should or should not bring the case, but that's their standard. They have to believe that there's merit to the case. They can't just bring charges that have no legal viability. So in this case, prosecutors brought these 42 charges and now many are questioning the motive motivation to, to, for this modification, because the question is, at the outset, why bring 42 charges when there is this mandatory minimum sentence in place, which the prosecutors certainly know about, and they have the discretion to bring less charges, 
Why bring those at the outset if it's going to have this result? Instead, why not just drop some of those charges and only go after, uh, you know, instead of 42, go after less, right? So it's a complicated argument because prosecutors are also not supposed to be making they always make judgment calls, but they're not supposed to be taking one side or the other into consideration. They're supposed to be acting on behalf of the state. They're they're seeking justice for the state. That's their ethical duty and obligation. So it's just the fact that they're moving as prosecutors to modify the sentence shortly after a an outcry from the media. Right. An outcry mm-hmm. on TikTok, a boycott of Colorado, uh, a, a intense pressure, intense external pressure. The timing just seems to be a little coincidental. Interesting. <laughs> for, for yeah, lack of a better word, because it's an unusual procedural move to make as a prosecutor in this case. And Misty, and I'm, you think that all of this kind of back and forth that's being used right now could be kind of used to the defense's arguments for an appeal in general. Like everything that's kind of going on now, I mean, it just seems because it's so unprecedented and all this is going on, could this be used to their advantage in the future too? Yeah, that's actually a great question, Lauren. So in general, there are several different arguments to raise on appeal. The first is and the most common is judicial error. There's evidence that the judge allowed in that should not have come in, or there's evidence that the judge did not allow in that should have come into the courtroom. So Mm -hmm. it can go either way. So the judge lets something in that's prejudicial to the defendant. That's an argument on appeal. The defendant wanted a certain piece of evidence in, the judge did not let let, let it in. That's an argument on appeal. There's also other arguments relating to that type of judicial error, evidentiary concerns, and prejudice to the defendant. That's one piece of it. The other argument that's made is that a jury's determination is what's called against the weight of the evidence. And the argument is that the defendant was overcharged, that that the prosecutors went over their prosecutorial discretion, mm-hmm. overcharged the defendant. That created prejudice in the course of the trial, because remember, the jury's hearing everything at the same time, right. all of the evidence at the same time, and that a determination on some of the charges may have impacted the jury to find him guilty on other charges, and it's against the weight of the evidence. The other thing to look at is, okay, he was found guilty on these 27. What was he, what was he acquitted on, and does that make sense? Is there an argument to say that if he's acquitted on some of those, he should have been acquitted on these other, and the jury's determination is against the weight of the evidence? That's how what we're seeing here play out could impact the ultimate case. So there's that argument that he's overcharged and that somehow was uh, prejudicial. I will say that's a very, very difficult legal Mm, argument. But mm -hmm. with respect to the penalty, when you're talking about the penalty and the modification, and, and so outside of the appellate process, but the fact that the prosecutors are seeking a modification in this case, that inures, obviously, I, I, it's, it's, to the defense benefit because the prosecutors are making that argument the same argument that the defense has made. Keep in mind, prosecutors are saying now that they believe a proportionate sentence would be 20 to 30 years. 
the defense had asked for 20 at the original sentencing hearing. So Mm. you're talking about prosecutors and defense for in a rare situation with respect to the penalty phase of the case, you're talking about them being on the same page. And, and part of this is that because the judges lack discretion in that initial phase of the, of the penalty hearing. So the judge has to go by these mandatory minimum sentences. The judge has to say that they run consecutively. There's no distinction between criminal intent, right? So for instance, something that's mm-hmm. always taken into consideration is, is this person a threat to the community? What, what's this? Why are we putting, why right. is this person's sentence enhanced from somebody else? Now, here, you don't have an intentional murder case. You have a very, mm-hmm. very, very tragic, tragic, tragic event where the the mental state, which is what you look at in criminal cases, is a reckless mental state. And and that's 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 high, Lauren. I'm not saying that it isn't serious and severe. It most certainly is. Lives were lost here. So let's not right. lose right. that piece of it. But when you have a reckless mental state, it's it's much different than intentional. And so the question is, under the Colorado law, are you getting results that are disproportionate to the facts of the case and to the crime that was committed and to facts that are uncontested? And when you have the prosecutors here saying, hey, look, we don't think this sentence is fair, that's very, very telling to that point. And for sure, you're going to see Colorado take a hard look at this law and and they have been. So there's a task force that's actually looking at sentences specifically in the state of Colorado that was formed to assess how these sentences actually play out. What's on the books and how does that really play out in real life? And this task force had not gotten to dealing with the felony charges yet. They had dealt with misdemeanors. And that's all something for the legislature to revisit too. And so the impact of this case goes far beyond just these circumstances and this particular defendant. We're talking about scrutiny on the entire statutory scheme with respect to criminal prosecutions and penalty in Colorado. And maybe even further, uh, even further to the extent that Mandatory minimum sentences have been scrutinized for years and years and years by legal advocacy groups saying that the result is not fair. So even though something on the books might not be on its face uh, negatively impacting a particular group or negatively impacting defendants, that the way that it plays out in the courtroom, the mandatory minimum sentences are taking discretion away from the judges and actually judicial discretion really matters when it comes to assessing penalty because it allows those judges to take mitigating factors into consideration and aggravating factors into consideration. So there's so much going on in this case. There's so many implications just beyond what's happening in this courtroom. And that public pressure is probably something that's going to expedite that process of a task force looking at the law and maybe getting some change or some bills before the legislature that could potentially change the law in the future. Well, that's really interesting, the impact that this is going to have. And one thing I, one thing I wanted to ask you um, that I, we didn't get to talk about yet is that 
you have all of these nearly 5 million people that have signed this petition um, asking for the governor to grant clemency. And this is a separate thing that's going on at the, se- at the same time, correct? Like this is something separate that could also happen? Yes. So this is a completely separate process. So what we see playing out in the courtroom has to do with a procedure that's written into the criminal code. So as we discussed, you have mandatory minimum sentences, and then you have a mechanism in Colorado for judges to review those sentences after the fact and take additional information into consideration. That's what we're talking about. Prosecutors now asking for a sentence modification. In addition Hmm. to that, we have the defense saying we don't want this to impact our ability to appeal. So appealing the verdict is a whole other mechanism for potential relief for the defendant and something that they will pursue. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you have the clemency or pardon application being made to the governor. So in Colorado and and in every state, for the most part, you see these the ability for the governor to pardon somebody who has been convicted of a crime Mm -hmm. or to grant clemency, which could mean changing the sentence from what was given uh, during that during that penalty phase of a trial. And that power rests solely within the governor of the state. So The Colorado Constitution says the governor shall have power to grant reprieves, commutations and pardons after conviction for all offenses, except in cases of treason and impeachment. So this is a very, very broad power that the Mm. government has. And it's in place for situations where there is maybe there's a false conviction. Maybe there's an outcome that is just so starkly uh, unfair or, or that is not proportional. So this is a process. There has uh, a petition has been made to the governor, uh, as you said, Lauren, mm-hmm. and it's a completely different analysis and process than what's going on in the legal part of the case. So the governor, again, this process is it's almost an unfettered process, but in general, it's not something that a governor is going to do willy nilly, right? They review mm-hmm. all applications. All applications are and all petitions are reviewed. And then in general, there's a lot of discretion used uh, as to when this very, very broad power is is actually is actually enacted because it is so broad. I would say in this particular case, my expectation would be that the governor would hold off and wait to see how this Mm. modification proceeding unfolds. Um, I know that. There's been articles which have cited family members of the victims asking the governor to hold off on making any decisions until Mm. this this process has been uh, has actually played out. Now, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the court. And I I think the date was January 13th for this for this new hearing, because both sides are going to be able to present evidence okay so interesting okay yeah so when i say evidence it's not gonna be you know it's not retrying the Mm -hmm. phase of the case but both sides can present mitigating or aggravating factors so what the prosecution may show is victim impact statements so you'll see the families of the victims either make statements Mm. or 
They can write letters. There's a lot of different mechanisms for making these statements now, especially in the COVID world, if people can't be in the courtroom. Uh, and so you'll see the v- victim impact statements. You may see family members or people impacted by the, the tragic death of these four people. You may see them come in and speak. Now, what what have the prosecutors have indicated that part of their analysis for making this uh, motion for a modification comes from the position of the family members of the victims that, that, that they have not said we want this person to be in jail for the rest of their life. Right. Mm-hmm. Which, which mm-hmm. is not always the right. case because we we've, we've covered many trials where uh, it's quite the opposite. Of course. Of course. Yeah. And the prosecutors are focused on presenting aggravating factors. The defense can also bring in, uh, have people speak on behalf of the defendant. And in this case, I would think you might see some character testimony. You're probably going to see a focus on the lack of criminal record. Mm -hmm. Uh, The defense team has already come out and said that they don't intend for the defendant to testify again. But he testified in the trial. He showed extreme remorse for what happened Mm -hmm. during his testimony. They'll probably be bringing that uh, that into the case before the judge because it's all about the mitigating factors in this particular situation. Where this diverges from your average case is that you're usually prosecutors are seeking a harsher sentence and defendants are seeking a, a, a less harsh sentence. Here, you, from what we've, what's come out so far, we see that prosecutors are looking for 20 to 30 years and we see defenses looking for 20 years. And so their, their positions are not as divergent as, as a typical uh, sentencing hearing would would normally be you'd have two people with very starkly different positions here it's here it's not quite the same situation however i would expect that prosecutors would still focus upon the fact that regardless of of this there was a loss of life mm-hmm. and that the defendant was convicted on these charges um and so it's you're not going to see my prediction, you won't be seeing anything less than that 20 years. Well, and I think that that's interesting because also, and correct me if I'm wrong on this one, but the defendant, he also said outright that he doesn't think he should get no time. He thinks he should deserve time. He is devastated by what has happened and everything that, you know, the loss of life. And he is that he wasn't taken away also as well in that. And so I think that he's, he's flat out right said that he doesn't expect nothing. Right. Absolutely. And all of that, those are strong Mm -hmm. arguments for the defense, Mm -hmm. because in from a defense perspective, one factor that you focus on when you're talking about sentencing is, is this person remorseful? Yes. So here Mm -hmm. we don't have a case where it's I didn't do it. Right. There are certain cases where the narrative is I didn't do it. It wasn't (laughs) me. It was somebody else. I'm falsely accused. What happened Mm -hmm. happened in this case. Right. We know who was driving the truck that day. The question is, what level of culpability do we have here? He's been convicted, but are there mitigating factors that would justify a sentence that goes off of what these sentencing guidelines say? And it sounds from the petition that's been made by the prosecutors that the answer is yes, and that both sides are in agreement that there are some mitigating factors. Um, Again, 
I think we probably see something in that 20 to 30 year range. We have a consensus from both sides, presumably, unless the defense comes in asking for something different than they did during during the original penalty phase, which was Uh, 20 years. It seems that there's almost a consensus on the amount of time that they're seeking. More uh, more problematic is is likely these procedural issues, which both sides are going to present because the defendant does not want to lose that right to an appeal. And that's where we come into this predicament from a procedural point of view that you have an unprecedented situation where you have prosecutors making this motion and seeking a modification of the sentence as opposed to the defendant seeking a modification of the sentence, which would be the normal course of action in in mm. this case. So that procedural, I'm sure that all of that red tape that will be sorted through at the outset, the defense absolutely wants to maintain its ability to appeal because remember that appeal is going to relate to the verdict of, mm-hmm. of guilt, not just the penalty. And then in addition to that, there, um, you know, we're talking at this modification hearing. Then we're going to see that mitig- those mitigating factors going before the judge and the judge at the, for the first time can take that into consideration as opposed to the first uh, penalty he, penalty case where the judge had to give this 110-year sentence based on the Colorado statute. So I think the question moving forward is this is a prime example of how the law, that's, as it's <laughs> written, can play out in a way that isn't proportional, right? Mm-hmm. That, that it's problematic, that because the judge doesn't have any discretion – at the outset, the judge has no control over uh, the sentence it, to the extent that mitigating factors exist. So that's probably where you'll see the legislature taking a, a look at how to modify that law to potentially alleviate the problems that come from the way the law is written. Now, on the flip side, because Colorado does have that mechanism to seek sentencing modification, in any case, by the defendant, you may see the law, and, and this is what advocates want. Advocates want judges to have discre- discretion at the outset. There's a mm. lot of groups that think mandatory minimum sentences are, uh, lead to unjust results. And that's not just in Colorado. That's across the country. That's been, uh, right. that's been a controversial issue for years and years and years. So this case is, is a little bigger than just this defendant. This is a case that's not only shining a bright light on the Colorado law, having the ta- these task force take a hard look at the at the law, and take a hard look at how it's actually playing out, and have the legislature take a hard look at whether or not it should be changed. But you may see states with similar types of statutory schemes taking a look at their laws and making these same types of um, assessments in the wake of this case and the national attention that it's garnered. Oh, it's going to be really interesting. I, who knew that this small, small case that not many people had heard of was going to make such an impact just nationally. Absolutely. And we'll be keeping yep. a close eye on it as we approach that January 13th hearing date. And we'll absolutely update you all with the results of that. And again, my prediction, I'm not always right. Lauren knows that, but <laughs> my prediction but is good. that we see something in that 20 year range, maybe a little bit more. Again, this is a tragic case all around. Um, and I think that we will see prosecutors 
reminding everybody because look, mm-hmm. there's there's been so much media fury over this case, and I'm I I believe that that is right uh, i yeah. think that the the result of this case certainly is something that should be reviewed by the judge and the judge should have uh in this second hearing discretion to take other factors into consideration and that's the path that we're going down now but there were lives lost yeah and he was convicted of some pretty high level crimes here so as we talked about lauren even the defendant in this case has said mm-hmm. that he doesn't think this is, you know, this is not walking away with probation. Right. Just that the sentence of 110 years is not proportional to the case because those mitigating factors are not being taken into consideration. So this should be uh, very interesting the way that it plays out. We will keep you posted on that January 13th. We will revisit this case after that. We sure will. We sure will. Well, Missy, this is a great discussion as always. Thank you so much for bringing all of this down for us. Oh, thank you, Lauren. And oh, we will be back later this week with more content on some of the other cases that are capturing the news and capturing the nation. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening.